0: Hey, I want to pray. Uh, I need prayer. Uh, This is God's word and and I am am weak and it's in his weakness where his power is made perfect. Uh, We are all weak and we need his spirit as we'll see in this passage to help us understand this incredible story of his grace. So let's, let's, let's pray. Take some moments in silence to pray. Pray for me. Oh, Father, what a gift it is to call you, Father. To be so personal with you. To know that we are your children, whom you love, children whom you've stored up an inheritance for, children who you fought for, who you saved, who you sealed, and will deliver us to the end, Lord. We come to you humbled again, humbled in your presence as we come before your word and and it says in your scripture that we should come with a trembling heart. Lord, I pray that we would realize how unworthy we are in ourselves, but how worthy we are in Christ. That as we come to your word, Lord, although it is beyond our capacity to understand, and once we were in darkness and could not understand it, now, Lord Jesus, because of you, we can grasp it. And because of your spirit, we can understand these things. And Lord, I pray that along with Paul the Apostle, that we would be given the spirit of wisdom and revelation, that we may know the hope that you have given us the glorious inheritance for all the saints and the immeasurable power that is in Christ Jesus. I pray that we would know, Lord. Know what we have. Know what has already been given to us. Lord, as our minds deviate to other places, even now in this moment, as it drifts off into lustful thoughts or covetous desires or the busyness of the week, Lord, draw our hearts and minds back that we may comprehend the mystery of Christ. We've been born again, Lord. You've made us a new creation. The old has gone. Our old priorities, our old desires, our old uh, aims in life are dead to us. And now we have a new one to magnify you, Lord, in all that we do, in all that we say, in all that we think. And it's only by your spirit, by your grace, that we will ever be able to do this. Have mercy on me as I speak. Have mercy on us as we learn. And bring glory, glory to your name. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week we compared our culture to the culture of uh, Ephesus, where Paul is writing to this worldly culture, a culture of success, status, security, comfort, much like ours today. I want to ask you, what do you want for your life? What is your aim in life? Sometimes we can get stuck in this habit of thinking that we are guaranteed our 80 years or 90 years. Sometimes it's hard to really imagine that our life could be cut short today. Last week I shared about Sam Chapman, a young man who passed away at 29 after a long, decade-long period of suffering. It made me realize that every single person here today will die. Maybe I'm a bit slow at learning these things, but last week it really hit me that every person in my life is going to suffer. I, I don't feel like I've lost many people in my life that are close to me yet, but they will. My parents, my siblings, my church, myself, we're all going to extinguish from this place. We're going to expire, our life is going to come to an end and it made me realise, do I actually think that I've got 80 years ahead of me, maybe not quite 80 anymore, but I had it 80 years, that's what the Bible says, Psalm, uh, Psalm uh, 90 tells us that we will uh, at best have 80 years, anything after that is sort of uh, living in excess, which is pretty good. So what is our aim with these years? What is our hope with the years that we would have? What do we want to achieve? Now often this can come out and is spelt out in if you have children in the way you raise your children. I remember ministering to this 14-year-old boy once and he was really stressed out at school, wanting to succeed in his education and I just uh, gently reminded him that schooling isn't everything. And finishing the HSC isn't the most important thing in his life. In fact, there's plenty of good jobs you can get without doing the HSC. Well, the next day I got a call from his dad. And his dad said, I want something better for my son. I don't want him to be a tradie like you. They were his direct words. Uh, I will never forget them. But what it made me realize, it made me realize that his desires for his life were imputed to his child. He wanted to be successful, he wanted to be comfortable, he wanted to be uh, 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 have a job of standing, and he imputed that to his children. A similar experience happened with my parents when I decided to go into ministry. They were like, no, you need to be financially secure, be an electrician. And I was like, nah, go into ministry instead. We see our parents, or if you are a parent of a child, that often the desires you have for yourself, you start to even accentuate even more for your children because you care about them and you love them and you want them to succeed. So you start to say comfort, security, success, status is the most important. Another way we can see what we want with our life is how we pray. How often we pray, the things we pray for. If we view that this world is of high importance and the next world or our spiritual life is of little importance, prayer may seem to us as a hindrance or a time-wasting activity. Prayer may become something we do on the way to things rather than taking a solid block of time to meditate and pray and ask for spiritual increase. Maybe it's something we do where we're just like, God, give me strength to work today. Make sure that I get this next promotion. We start listing a shopping list of prayer requests that nearly always have to do with the earth rather than our spiritual status before God. Our prayer life is a great representation of what we want to achieve in our life. Our prayer life often will reveal that our focus is actually on this world and not on Christ and, the, and and His desires for us. You see, as a Christian, as a Christian, as those who are in Christ, as we see Paul use far more often 169 times in the New Testament, those who are in Christ have been born again. They died to their old self. They are a new creation. Therefore, even our desires and our motives for work and our desires for comfort and security, they've changed. It's no longer founded in this world, in success. It's founded in a place that is in the heavens. It's founded in a person who is seated in the heavenly realms named Jesus. So as a Christian, prayer then becomes our life. Prayer becomes the breath, sorry, the air we breathe. The person who is in Christ breathes, breathes daily the air of prayer. It has. They have to, they need to. It is a planned, unhindered time to seek first God and His desires for our life. Yes, we come with prayer requests, but we should examine what those requests actually are. You see, our greatest enemy to prayer is our pride. Our greatest enemy to prayer is our pride. Many things we do in the Christian world can uh, give us a view of honour or praise. We can be really good at serving and start serving people so that people notice us. We can be really good at sharing the gospel with people so we start to share the gospel with people so that others may see how good we are at doing it. We may be really hospitable, but we're only going to be hospitable when people can see. And praise us. And we may be awesome at studying our Bible so that we can articulate the many verses that we have memorized or know about. But the activity of prayer, secret prayer, to go into our closet and lock the door and pray to our Lord, there's no bragging rights in that. No one sees that. Your Heavenly Father sees it and He knows that you do it and He honors that But prayer will reveal our pride most of all. Because prayer reveals that we will do all the Christian duties while ever anyone is watching, or while ever I may get praise. But the lack of prayer in our life, the sin of prayerlessness, reveals to us that we have it all together. It says to God, I don't need you, and I've got this sorted And when we don't go and hide away in our prayer and retreat to pray alone with God, it reveals that we often do things to be known, to be rewarded. There's a lot that can be seen through our prayer. So as a Christian, as a new creation, as someone who has been born again, do we plan to pray each day? Do we pray without ceasing, as Paul says, but do we actually set aside times to have a daily moment, a daily uh, office with God, a daily meeting with Him, where we would ask that our spiritual life may be strengthened and our earthly life, life may become increasingly dim? Where we would be in heartfelt prayer of repentance, pleading with God to remind us of the gospel so that we can feel the grace and mercy that he has lavished upon us. Would we be thankful for the things we have and the people we have in our life? And do we intercede for others, praying for them that they may grasp the heavenly truths? We've been spending three weeks on Ephesians 1, 3 to 14. The work, this great work of the Father, Son and Holy Spirit. How he brought humanity to himself as one church, a bride for his son, who is sealed for an inheritance in, in eternity. Yet we can't grasp it. Yeah, we expanded on those scriptures. We We taught much of what was said here, but we can't grasp it in ourselves. We need the Holy Spirit to grasp these things. So what follows is Paul saying in 15 to 23 in these verses that prayer is the way we grasp the heavenly blessings. Verse 3, back what we started, the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places. We have been given all the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places, but how on earth will we grasp them? They're in heaven. We need the Spirit who comes from heaven to fill us and help us understand. And it is through prayer that we grasp the spiritual blessings. And it's through prayer that we grasp the belief in the gospel, the understanding of the cross, the uh, power of the resurrection, the hope that we have in all eternity. It is through prayer that we as Christians learn to live this out. Prayer is a Christian duty, yet we don't like the word duty very often. We start to kick back and say, well, that's legalism. But it's not legalism. It's how we continue in the faith. It's how we endure. Is breathing legalism? Well, prayer is definitely not legalism. We should have a daily structured time of prayer in order to endure in this life. Paul's prayer here consists of thanksgiving, intercession, and praise. This morning we're going to look at the first two, thanksgiving and intercession, and next week we'll look at His section on praise. Let me read this whole section. Uh, I'll read 15 to 19, which is the areas we're going to focus on today. Ephesians 1, 15 to 19. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus, your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayer. Prayers. That the God of my Lord, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope in which you have been called, what are the riches of His glorious inheritance in all the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of His power towards us who believe according to the working of His great might. Picking up in verse 15, it says, For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints. These are the first two things he focuses on the faith in the Lord Jesus and his love, the love for all the saints. But before we unpack those, we should understand a bit about Paul. Paul was a great example to the church. And he still is a great example to the church. He says at the end of Ephesians, uh, at the end of Corinthians, imitate me as I imitate Christ. That's a bold statement to make. Paul is confident that he has been empowered by the Holy Spirit to be such a good representation of Christ, such a good imitator of Christ, that the church of that day and our day could imitate him, live like him, and be confident that they're imitating Christ their Saviour. Paul is just a vessel, he's just a man, he is none other than us, but he has some things that we don't. He was one, an apostle, a eyewitness of Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, who saw him on the road to Damascus, and he was two, filled with the Holy Spirit to the point where his words were inspired. My words are not inspired, your words are not inspired, and there is no one alive today who can claim to be an apostle. So Paul was a man who lived his life in obedience to uh, the Holy Spirit, in obedience to the Word, and was filling his life with this attitude of, I will magnify God, I will magnify Christ in the church and in the world. We see in Philippians, Philippians 1, where he says, I make it my aim, whether in life or in death, to magnify Christ. Whether he lives or die, Christ will be of most importance. Christ will become greater than he is. He will decrease, Christ will increase. And he does this in the church and in the world. Whether he is around those who agree with him or around those who disagree with him. This is the ultimate aim of Paul. And what does he want the church to have as well? The same. When I asked you, what is your aim for life? What do you want to achieve in your life? Would it be the same as Paul? As he says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Would it be that we magnify Christ in the church and in the world? Would that be our ultimate aim? And would that shape the way we pray? If our aim is to succeed in this life, if our aim is to get to the next career level, the next family level, the next uh, worldly status, then we will pray in accordance with that. But if our aim and our goal in life is the same as Paul, that whether by life or by death we may magnify God in the church and in the world, then our prayers will be shaped by the magnification of Jesus. And we see this so clearly as he starts to pray that his hope and his thanksgiving is in faith of the church in the faith of this particular church. So Paul looks in verse 15 and he says, I want to remind you for this reason I've heard. He hasn't been with the Ephesians for for like four years now. He hasn't been there, he hasn't seen them, he hasn't even been in their vicinity or he would have gone to see them. Instead he's heard of their faith in the Lord Jesus and the love they have towards the saints. That's pretty hard to do in those days, 2,000 years ago. Like today, maybe they'll hear about our love and our faith because of Facebook. But back then, it was hard. It had to be word of mouth. That means other Christians have visited. That means some of them have gone out. They have shown their love to other churches. They've shown their love to the world. They've shown their faith in the Lord Jesus, their obedience to him. And this is what he is thankful for. He's not thankful for worldly things. He hasn't received a letter from the Ephesians that says, oh, yep, I just got a new job at the local uh, the local arena. Oh, I'm thankful for the fact that I've just been freed from slavery. Oh, I'm thankful that I have got new health or a, a reinvigoration of new health. No, what he hears about this church is that they have a strong faith in the Lord Jesus. And this is of utmost importance to him. As a man who wants to magnify Jesus in both the church and in the world, he cares most of all about people's spiritual well-being and he thanks God that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ is working in the Ephesians church and it's working in a way that produces faith in our Lord Jesus. There's this weird idea where people can often say, well, Jesus is my saviour or he's not my lord, uh, but he's not my lord. Or some people say, yeah, that person, they're just going through a stage where, yeah, they're saved by Jesus, but he's not their Lord. That's impossible. Jesus came to save us from our disobedience, from the fact that we've uh, elevated ourself to Lordship or elevated something in this world to Lordship over him. He saved us to put him as Lord in our life. So if Jesus is your Savior, he is your Lord. He is your Lord. He is the one you are obedient to. And this is what Paul is praising God for. I thank you, God, that this church has their faith set on you, Jesus. That you are their Lord. That they want to obey you. They want to live by you. They want to be dictated around the things that you love. They want to honor you. How often is our thanksgiving around the outworking of grace in other people's lives. How often do we come to think of the people in our church and we just say, Lord, I just want to thank you for that person's faith, how it's how it's been encouraging the body to grow in faithfulness. Or I just want to thank you for this person's generosity. Or I want to thank you for the person uh, who, who has been showing such kindness and love or who is so self-controlled that I just want to thank you for them. That we're looking at each other and we're trying to identify the gifts that God has given us, the gifts of grace, and we start to thank God around the spiritual things rather than the earthly things. Now we live in an age where we need to clarify things all the time. So let me clarify, we can still pray for earthly things. We can pray for a job, we can pray for healing. Yes, I agree with those, but of utmost importance is our most important thing that we pray for and thank God for, is spiritual increase. The outworking of God's grace in our life. I want to see people succeed in this world for one reason. That God may be glorified above all else. And I hope that in our prayers this would come and be apparent that our thanksgiving would be primarily firstly focused on the spiritual increase in people's lives how God's grace is working in their midst. Paul continues to speak about this outworking of of God's grace in the church's life, which, if we just stop for a moment and and think about how incredible it is that God would transform a whole multi-race of people, every tribe, tongue, and nation... To be one body, to be reconciled to each other and reconciled to theirself—that that is worthy of thanksgiving far above anything else. Paul, in the, in the letter to the Corinthians, Corinthians 1, this horrendous church, and as you read it, you'll see some horrendous things going on. Disobedience to the Lord, all sorts of sins. He still, in his first ten verses, takes time to thank God for them. Still. This, this church, he's about to just tear shreds off for the rest of the letter. He still takes moments to thank, thank thank God for them, to thank God that their grace, the grace, His grace, is working in them. It is an incredible and most beautiful thing that His grace is working in the midst of us today, and we should not look past that or or, or, or see. Earthly increase as better than any spiritual increase that we may gain. The outworking of grace that he is so thankful for is that they love all the saints. That they love the saints. The saints are all those who have called upon the name of the Lord. The saints are those who gather in the name of Jesus, who are in Christ, as Paul likes to use. We are saints if you have repented and believed in Jesus. That is who he is saying that they love. But that is a hard thing to grasp. I've worked in different construction sites and different areas in my life, and I reckon the most horrible, most nasty place I've ever experienced was in a church. Not on the construction site. It was in the church. Not this church. A different church. It was a horrible experience. Slander, gossip, trying to tear people down, trying to promote themselves. There was no love for one another. It was about elevation of, of, of self. And Paul says here, Oh Lord, I thank you that they love the saints. In 1 John, it reminds us so clearly that we have to love our brother, whom we can see. How can you love a God who you can't see if you can't love your brother or sister who you can see? It is evidence of our salvation that we love one another, love the saints. And right here in the church of Ephesus, Paul is seen that God's grace is working in them so much that they love all the saints, even the Corinthian church. Even the church that is in disorder and dysfunction, they love them too. And Paul loves them. Paul loves them because we notice that he thanks God for them. And I think the two go hand in hand. If we're going to love one another, we need to be thanking God for them all the time. He says in verse 16, I do not cease to give thanks for you. I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. So both things, I do not cease to give thanks and I do not cease to pray for you. If we are going to love one another, we're messed up. I'm not an easy person to love. I'm a hard person to love. And I'm I'm telling you, you guys are hard to love as well at times. And we are grinding our way through this world of pursuing Christ, being sanctified by him, and there's sin that's going to come out and we're going to hurt one another and mess one another up and we're still called to love. We're still called to love one another. And if we're going to do that, we need to be thanking God for one another. They go hand in hand. How am I going to love all the saints? I'm going to thank God for them. I'm going to take time every day to thank God for two or three brothers and sisters until I get around the whole church so that my love is increasing and so that the thing that I'm meditating on the most is the grace of God in them and not the sin that's in them. How quickly are we to look to the sin of one another rather than the grace that's in them? How quickly do we resort to going, oh, did you see what that person did? But not see the kindness that was in them before, or the wisdom that was in them before. We all here who call on the name of Jesus have God's grace working in us day after day. It is a beautiful, beautiful thing. And it's through our thanksgiving that we will grow in love for one another. So can I encourage you and and inspire you, church, to pray like Paul did. I can't imagine Paul thought it was easy to love the Corinthian church, but he thanked God for them. Without ceasing, it says. He thanked God for them. Here for the the Ephesian church as well. There would have been times that it was hard to love, but he thanked God for them. And I want to just remind us and give us a warning that this church lost its first love. Revelation 2. Jesus comes and sends letters to seven churches and he sends one to the Ephesians. I have this that I commend you of, that you are faithful to the word of God, but you have turned from your first love, come back to your first love. They turn from their first love in Christ and I can imagine if you don't love Christ you're not loving the church. So would we take the warning and know that this church itself although it was uh, commended and, and Paul thanked for their love now they lose it later on. I plead with you I plead with myself plan time with unhindered unhurried thanksgiving towards God. Unhindered Unhurried thanksgiving towards God. If it is not planned, it won't happen. I've been through this. I'm like, yeah, I just want to be spontaneous. I'm a really spontaneous guy. Doesn't work. You don't do it. I can tell you straight away, you will not do it. Plan it, put it into your life. If it's rostered in at a certain time, do it, and it will be for your benefit. It's for your benefit. Verse 17. Uh, just I'll read the end of sixteen. Remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. Paul turns from thanksgiving to intercession. I remember when I first heard the word intercession, I was like, uh, uh, I had this older pastor come up to me and he's like, "Have you learned to pray uh, intercessory prayers?" And I was like, "Oh, that sounds pretty exciting. I want to I wanna learn how to." intercessory prayers and then realized it was just praying for people. Um, To pray uh, and to intercede for people is to intervene on their behalf or to appeal on their behalf, to make an appeal for someone on their behalf. So when we're talking about uh, petitioning or supplication, uh, interceding is another word we can use there in scripture. And it's coming before God on this person's behalf and saying, God, I, I plead with you, I pray for them, I, I ask you to lift them up or I ask you to grow them in their knowledge of you, whatever it may be. Here Paul intercedes for them, for this church's on their behalf and he comes to God not looking, not looking for the earthly success, not praying for the list of things that he, he, he has for them, uh, that, are, that are from a worldly perspective but praying spiritual things for them. I want you to think of a prayer meeting that you've been to. Often we go to these prayer meetings and the first half an hour maybe you've experienced it is like everyone just listing all their prayers. Oh, I need to pray for this and I need to, I need to, pray, I need to pray for a new job I need to pray for a new car I need to pray that I'm not homeless I need to pray for this whatever it may be. We just list all these prayers for half an hour. Paul knows there's one thing this church needs and it's going to fix all the other things whether they're in need for new jobs or whether they're succeeding in life the one thing that's going to help them whether they're suffering or thriving is that they grow in the knowledge of god that they understand more of who god is we just heard in verses 3 to 14 this marvelous work of god in verses 3, the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places have been given to you, every one of them. I don't get that. We need to understand that. We need to grasp that. And he knows that although, although this church, the Ephesian church, would have been experiencing persecution, suffering, some of them would have been succeeding in their careers, others would have been losing their jobs because of their faith. And he prays, most of all, that their spiritual health would be strengthened. And he says, the father of our Lord Jesus Christ may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. That is what we need. That is what we need, whether we're suffering or thriving. That is what we need if we're in need or not in need. That is what we need at all times in every part of life. We need more knowledge of every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. We need more knowledge of Christ and Him crucified. We need more more knowledge of His resurrection power. We need more knowledge of the future hope that we have in Him. The power has been given to us. Christ has given us all of Him. Every part of Him, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places is ours. We don't know it all. We don't understand it all. And it's through the power of the Holy Spirit that these things are revealed to us. We know that it's the power of the Holy Spirit that helps us understand. In 1 Corinthians 2, it tells us that no, no one can un- understand the mind of man without the spirit of man. You can understand my mind because you don't have my spirit. But you can understand God's mind because God's spirit has been given to us. That's an incredible gift. That is an amazing gift that God's Spirit would be given to us. In Luke 24, 45 to 47, we see right at the end of his gospel, the disciples. Remember how like dull they were? They just always misunderstood Jesus? Right here we see Jesus open their mind, 45 to 47. And then Jesus opened their minds to understand the scripture and he said to them, thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day he's raised from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. Do you know how many times he said that to them? Three, three times explicitly I can imagine there was a number more in the time he was with them and they didn't understand it. They didn't grasp that he had to die. They didn't understand that he was going to raise to life. And now it says their mind was opened and they understood the scriptures. Spurgeon says this, it's easier to teach a tiger to be a vegetarian than an unregenerate person, the gospel. That's what it means to have the Holy Spirit to grasp the gospel, to know that Jesus is God, to know that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, to know that he physically raised to life and to know that he's ruling and reigning in heaven where he is seated along with us. It is easier to teach a tiger vegetarianism than an unregenerate person the gospel. We need the spirit in order to grasp these heavenly, these spiritual blessings in the heavenly places, in order to grasp the gospel. So three things Paul goes on to pray in the rest of his prayer. In verse 18, having having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, and what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might. Paul explains here that our eyes of our heart need enlightening. This is a old tradition to understand that our heart is who we are, It's not the organ in our body, it's who we are, it's where our feelings come from, it's like the soul, it's where our feelings, our emotions, it's where our character comes from. And he's saying we need the eyes of our heart enlightened in order to grasp the hope to which we were called. Paul, in his understanding of being a person who had one goal, to magnify Christ in The church and in the world came to the place where he could be praying for specific needs for the Ephesian church. He knew about them and what was going on in their life, but rather knew that the greatest thing that they could have is to know more, to have the eyes of their heart, the understanding of their whole being, to be moved and rocked by the gospel, the hope in Jesus Christ. So to know the hope, three things that he wants us to know. To to know the hope that we're called for, the riches of his glorious inheritance, and the immeasurable greatness of his power. To know the hope of which we are called for is to have assurance of our salvation. He wants us to be certain. He doesn't want us to be in the midst of uncertainty, rocking back and forth between I believe and I don't believe. Doubt is okay because doubt helps us come to a firmer belief in our faith. But what he wants for us, and he knows that whether we are in addiction in addiction, or unemployment or sickness or uh, thriving through success, the best thing that we can have is security in our faith. If we're going through a hard time and we're in the midst of sin and addiction is overcoming us or we don't have employment or we're feeling sick or suffering through consistent sickness, what we need to know is that we're secure in Christ, free in Christ, forgiven in Christ and have a hope beyond this life. And that's what he assures us with. Church, I pray, not that you'll get better. He wants that, I'm sure. But more importantly, that you know that you will be better, or you know that your health is in Christ, that you know you're not spiritually de- that you're not spiritually dead anymore. Paul's importance is not the ultimate outcome of success, but rather knowledge. Knowledge of our hope. Knowledge of our certainty in God, in Christ. And in success, maybe we're thriving, maybe everything's going well. We need to remember that those times of success are there to magnify Christ. That we may have had promotions or new job opportunities and we are there so that we can now have access to new people to magnify Christ in their life that we may have now been given a promotion so that we can give more to the kingdom advancement or a job that we may give more to the kingdom advancement. Whether it's suffering, whether it's the taking away or the blessing, we need the hope by which we are called to refocus us and put us on our aim in life to magnify Christ in the church and in the world, whether by suffering or by thriving. We need our eyes of our heart enlightened so that we can grasp the riches of our inheritance. Uh, We need to remember that our ultimate end is not this life. It's not retirement. It's not to cruise Australia in a caravan. Our ultimate end is the life with Christ forevermore where we will magnify Him for all eternity. I heard it said once, the person who does the most in this life is the one who meditates most on the next one. Paul knows that what we need is a glimpse of the glorious inheritance that we await. Last week we finished our message with the weight of what we will experience in heaven, that we will stand before a holy God and worship Him day in and day out and will not be bored because He is infinite and incomprehensible. We need the eyes of our heart enlightened. He's praying that we would grow in our knowledge of this inheritance, that we may be sanctified so that we will enjoy and love Christ now, so that in the future we will love him for all eternity. This is what we need. Whether thriving or suffering, whether succeeding or uh, being torn down or taken away, we need a right focus on our heavenly destiny, our glorious inheritance. And finally, he says, the immeasurable greatness of his power. Often we pray, God, give me more power, give me more strength, give me more more of these things. And this passage and many other passages tell us that he has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He's given us everything. It's not that we need more of it. We need a greater knowledge and understanding of his power. Here, Paul doesn't ask for more power in their life. Verse 19, he prays that they would know, that the eyes of their heart may know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards those who believe. That we may know. The power is there for us. The joy, the comfort, the security is there for us. We don't need to be pleading, God, give me more, but rather give me more understanding. Help me know more of this. Help me comprehend more of the power that is within me, more of the comfort of the Holy Spirit, more of what it means that the Holy Spirit, the same Spirit that raised Christ from the dead, now lives in me. Help me to know that. He's there. He's not going anywhere. Help me to know it. Paul sees the need for whatever the Ephesian church is going through, whether persecution or fl- flourishing, that they need to know more of Christ's power. So, church, can I encourage you? What do you want for your life? Want to magnify Jesus in the church and in the world, whether suffering or thriving? Let your prayer life reveal that you are pleading, pleading for spiritual increase in yourself and in the, world, in, in the church for others. Praying a similar prayer to that song we heard, Take the world, but give me Jesus. That the new opportunities you have, you use to magnify God. That when you are torn down, you use your suffering to magnify God that as Paul sees the most important prayers that we can pray, when we don't know what's going on in someone's life, the best prayer we can pray, what we can do to intercede for them is say, give them more knowledge, increase their understanding, and thank God for the outworkings of grace in their life. So that in the end, we will not be magnified, but Jesus will be magnified both in the church and in the world. After studying this book, reading Ephesians last year, preparing for this series, two prayers have come to mind for this church. That you would have deep, deep assurance of your salvation. That we would have a certainty and that it would be seen from all people of how certain we are and how secure we are in Christ. And secondly, that we will be one as the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is one. That we will thank God for one another that we will love one another, that we'll be there for when people are in sorrow, whether we understand it or not, and we'll be there when people are rejoicing. Just as the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are united as one, we will be one. We'll see that unfold in next week's passage and then at the end of chapter 2, and it goes on and goes on. Assurance of salvation, oneness in Christ. My hope and prayer for the church. Let me pray. Father, I want to confess that my prayer life reveals to me that I have an assurance in myself and my own working, that at many times I fail to pray, that at many times I I fail to seek out your wisdom for the day ahead, for the tasks that are ahead. And I'm utterly embarrassed by them, Lord, in that I do your work day after day. I'm not even in a secular job. So, Father, I pray that you would bring me to an understanding and a knowledge more of your great hope that you have for me, the glorious inheritance in the saints and the immeasurable power that is, is there and present in my life. I pray for my brothers and sisters before me, those who work full time in the world, in which it is a hard and noble task to take the gospel into those places, that they would see the need to rise early, rise early and seek you, Lord, to call on the promises, to know of the power that is in you. For those who are full-time parents at home or who volunteer full-time for the church, Lord, I pray that through their parenting or through their labour in ministering to people in witnessing, that they may know the hope they have, that they would be increased by the power of Christ to see their need for prayer in their parenting life or in their volunteer life. Lord, whatever we do, whether we are employed full-time, whether we work at the church, whether we labor as a volunteer, we need prayer. It's the air we breathe. And let our prayers be of spiritual increase rather than earthly or worldly increase. Lord, I pray that this church, our church here, your church, your bride that gathers will have deep assurance of their salvation, a certainty that will be seen throughout the community and in each other's lives. I pray for oneness as you are one, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, would we be one, loving one another building one another up, thanking you for each and every one of us and the gifts that we have. Let us see, first and foremost, the outworking of grace in each other's lives before we see the sin. We love you, Lord. We give you praise. We give you glory, honour. It's all about you. It's for your name's sake. In Jesus' name, amen.